we looked at the lack of biodiversity. We looked at cows being turned into factories and we said all of that should be undone. We need to go back to a time when heritage breeds ruled, where flavor was most important, where quality was most important, where nutrient density was most important. And so as people were moving away from dairy milk seven, eight, nine years ago, we were saying, no, we have a choice. We can indeed go to the so-called alternative milks, or we can look at this legacy dairy industry and say, yeah, it's going to be really challenging, but let's turn this thing around. Let's fix what we've broken via legacy uh, industrialized farming practices. Let's fix those things by doing it right, not just by walking away from it, pure and simple. Let's discover what people are building in the greater Cleveland community. We are telling the stories of Northeast Ohio's entrepreneurs, builders, and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I had the real pleasure of sitting down with Adrian Boda, the co-founder and CEO of Origin Milk. Adrian's roots in farming go back to his father working on a farm in Romania. Adrian's parents and four siblings escaped from Romania right before the fall of communism, immigrating to the United States and arriving in Cleveland in 1991. While Adrian's father had imagined his child would seek careers in medicine or in law, Adrian ultimately drew on his background in business and in health to enter the farming industry. Prior to launching Origin, Adrian began his career helping to define Pfizer Pharmaceuticals' approach to the changing healthcare marketplace in the United States, and he later worked at the Cleveland Clinic Innovations Group to manage new ventures in healthcare technology, in genetics, and health and wellness. Led by his passion for nutrition and innovation, coupled with searching for the best options in nutrition for his new child, Adrian embarked on the journey of utilizing his background in the pharma and biotech sector to begin to rethink human nutrition from the very ground up. In 2015, Adrian embarked on that journey to wholesome, nature-led nutrition and established origin, a trailblazing regenerative A2 Guernsey dairy brand right here in Cleveland, Ohio. He began partnering first with small farmers in Ohio and has since grown the operation, partnering with small, family-owned farms in Pennsylvania and in Colorado. Their deep expertise in product development and knowledge of emerging consumer demands has led Origin to expand its portfolio now into multiple verticals, offering products spanning multiple milk varieties, chocolate, ghee, butter, and more. And as you'll hear in our conversation today, Adrian is one of the sharpest and shrewdest builders I have come across. One of my favorite discussions so far and an absolute pleasure to listen and learn from. And at the risk of being put out to pasture for some of the worst milk puns I'll ever utter on this podcast, Adrian is a genuine mover and shaker in the dairy world, where he is committed to leading the shift away from big dairy, which is reliant on legacy cows and factory farming, to a regenerative, organic, and always local model of clean dairy. So please enjoy my conversation with Adrian Boda. Thank you for... For joining us, Adrian, in kind of researching origin and, and the work that you've done, you, you have a, a truly fascinating story, and I, I'm very excited to to learn more about it and, and hear how you uh, how you think about it. So, thank you for for coming on. Glad to be here. So, to, to start, I think we have to explore a little bit from you know the perspective of both what brought you to Cleveland from Romania and similar you know, kind of stark transition from the world of, of pharmaceuticals and, and healthcare to, to farming. So 
I'd love to start if you could just share a bit of your your own personal story and how how your career has uh, evolved over time. Sure. So my personal story starts with Romania. I was born and raised in communist Romania uh, back in the 80s. And uh, my family, so my parents had been wanting to get out of, uh, out of that regime for a long time. And so they made several attempts to leave. And one of the ways that the communist dictatorships would essentially persecute you or would try to keep you there is by not allowing you to leave, not allowing you to go visit other countries or indeed to immigrate to another country. And so with us having had family in the U.S., we had some aunts and uncles, grandparents on my father's side. You know, my parents wanted to leave. They really wanted to get to America, but they weren't allowed. And so out of a different series of events, my mom was able to come to America on a visitor's visa in 1989. And that visitor's visa was granted to her after she gave birth to uh, a child, so the fifth child in our family. And that infant had to stay back in Romania. And my mom had a 30-day visitor's visa to come to America. In the interim, my dad concocted a plan to take the rest of the kids or the kids and uh, escape Romania and then rendezvous back with her in America at some point. And she didn't, she wasn't in on that plan. She went for a 30-day visit to the U.S. And uh, then she found out that that, that's what he was going to do. And um, we then left he through um, Hungary and a couple of years of adventures, almost two years of adventures and refugee camps and prison and all kinds of different uh, trials and tribulations, perhaps. And just, uh, I would say as an adventures, as a younger kid, I was seven years old at the time, made us through to get us through Hungary and into Austria and then into the U.S. about a year and a half, a year, a few months later. So that, that, that's, the, that's the foundation for at least my family. Everyone has their own story and that's our family's story and it's you know there's a lot there are a lot of details and it's longer winded but it does set the foundation for what drives a uh, part of what drives me so I'm, I'm very driven by faith so we have a very strong faith background our family and then us person myself personally and and uh, and our, my immediate family and then uh, very driven by the experience of having grown up in a communist country and escaping that regime and um, then taking care or taking as much of good advantage of opportunities as possible here in the US or another and anywhere else where we ended up along the way. Hmm. So through those, I guess, ultimately tr- trials and, and tribulations, why, why Cleveland? What, 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 what kind of brought you to here ultimately at the, uh, the end of that, that journey? Yeah. So Cleveland is because that's where we had family and there was family here because they had some kind of family and those people were here because, you know, a long time ago before it was the, uh, if before it was the Rust Belt, it was the actual uh, kind of manufacturing hub of the U.S. at some point. And so you had a lot of Eastern Europeans that uh, immigrated to places like Cleveland and Akron and Detroit and Chicago and Pittsburgh and Cincinnati, et cetera. And so Cleveland is where we had some family um, and a church community. And so that's where we ended up coming to. Hmm. And so to, to kind of layer on the, the professional you know, side to, to that story, you know, you mentioned motivations of, of both faith and also, you know, taking advantage of, of the opportunities available here. Take us through your, your, your professional journey and, and kind of how it inspired by or, or relates to, to, your, to your personal one. Yeah, my, my personal journey was one where, you know, I had to work from the time I was in junior high. And so 
I was always doing school and work. And then I went to the University of Akron and was exposed to a little bit more of what I would want to do over the long term and knew it was either going to be something in law or in, in business. My journey was one where I was able to uh, compete for an internship with Pfizer and I won that internship and that led me to New York City. And then after school, you know, coming back to Akron, finishing off my last semester and then being hired by Pfizer and then moving to New York City for an extended period of time or about eight and a half years. And so I was in Cleveland, but I was really absolutely knew that I was going to probably end up somewhere else. And I did indeed end up somewhere else and then came back when it was time to start a family and worked at Pfizer and then worked on Wall Street, worked in consulting and in private equity. And then when we decided we wanted to start a family, made a move back to Cleveland, the avenue, the career transition was to be at the Cleveland Clinic, Cleveland Clinic Innovations, helping to commercialize um, ideas that were being spun out of the, the clinic. Um, and then I spent a, a little bit of time in Cleveland Clinic Innovations, and then I was uh, asked asked to join the the newly formed strategy office at the Cleveland Clinic, working for the chief strategy officer and helping to coordinate strategic partnerships and um, and other strategic initiatives of the Cleveland Clinic. So the 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 world of of agriculture and and dairy farming it, it's quite in contrast I feel to the the worlds of of Wall Street and private equity and and you know, corporate strategy, innovation, and, you know, you know, that, that kind of line of, of work, where do your inspirations come from for transitioning back to, to the, the agricultural world? And, you know, was entrepreneurship something that, that you were thinking about all throughout that journey as something that you knew you wanted to do? How, how, how did that come to be? Yeah, those two worlds are indeed uh, very different. Um, so I was, I tell the story that I was trained professionally in my career to fix healthcare or to be in healthcare. And so initially was with products, which are pharmaceutical, biopharmaceutical products at Pfizer, right? So prescription medicine. And one of the ways that we're trained in America, that physicians are trained uh, and our mindset is trained to uh, fix what ails us is through pharmaceuticals. So something hurts, something doesn't feel right, something has gone wrong, you go to a doctor, you expect to get a, a prescription, you get that prescription, you fill it, and then boom, you feel better, right? So that's how you fix American healthcare or American health. And so if that doesn't work, then you go to the second place where I was trained uh, how to fix someone. You go to a hospital, right? And so if drugs don't work, you go to a hospital and what do they do in hospitals? They operate, right? And so what I was taught was these two primary delivery mechanisms for healthcare, drugs or surgery. And (laughs) in, in diving more deeply into the root causes of so many of the diseases and things that ail us, you come to find that about 80 to 85% of all the things that ail us are preventable and have to do with what we're putting into our bodies primarily, or we're putting onto our bodies. So, you know, the largest organ is our skin. And so, you know, we put a lot of things on our skin and that gets absorbed by the rest of our body and it has impact, but certainly the things that we put into our bodies, the things that we put into our stomachs uh, in particular have a huge impact on our health. And so, taking a step back and being very interested in infant and toddler nutrition, because we were looking at the time frame was having our first child. We saw that there's a huge need, a huge gap, particularly in infant and toddler nutrition, where three companies control almost 90% of all the, of all the formula created in the, in, in the U S today. And one company controls 30% of all the formula around the world. And that's, uh, 
a company that actually has some offices here in Cleveland. And so we looked at that and, and looked at the ingredients list and saw that it was really filled with so many things that don't belong there or that are synthetic or that are just arrived at in a wrong way. And so took a deeper dive on what's the foundation of nutrition and particularly infant and toddler nutrition. And to this day, although breast milk is absolutely best and, and, and that route, that nutrition is the absolute optimal nutrition for an infant. If you do choose to use infant formula, what is what passes as infant formula is not great at all. And its foundation is dairy. So it is lactose because that mirrors mother's milk. It's lactose is the number one ingredients followed by uh, various fat sources, followed by whey protein, and then some other macro and mostly micronutrients and uh, uh, vitamins and minerals. And so we looked at that and said, wow, we could totally redo this. And from the genesis of life, from the origin of life, we can impact human health by the things that we're putting into our bodies. And so there's the, the beginning of origin. That was the origin origin story. And we called it origin because we said it answers the question, where did this come from? What's the origin of this? And what's the beginning of this? We kind of want to take it back. And so it led us down the, the trail of uh, learning and understanding more about the various breeds of cows that produce different types of milk or different qualities of milk. And those that the milk that comes from different cows can have different nutrient densities and genetic properties and characteristics and qualities, et cetera, that lend themselves really well to both having a positive impact in human health and nutrition and also a positive environmental impact. And so we rolled with it. It's a, it's a fascinating origin story. I love how first principled it is just, you know, thinking about preventative care rather than this very reactive model that we have and, and going right, <laughs> right to the source. It's, uh, it's awesome. I, I think before we, we dive in more to the, the nature of, of the work you're, you're doing itself, I think both for my own edification and for anyone tuning in, it would be cool to just kind of set the stage and understand how, you know, through, through your research and learning how dairy production has evolved over the course of history, you know, what are, what are some of those differences that, that you kind of picked up on and, and are, are ultimately, you know, valuable, you know, particularly through the lens of in researching some of what you're doing, you know, there's, there's a one genes, a two genes, having not a real understanding of what the difference between those are, but, and then more, you know, from the, the business side, what happened to, you know, glass bottle milk, right. And, and the, the days where uh, perhaps it, it was, you know, more clean dairy in, in contrast to how we think about, you know, big, bear, big dairy production today. Sure. So, so the biggest difference in dairy today versus how it was, say, 100 years ago, is that we've introduced industrialized farming practices for the sake of creating more milk. So it's all about quantity of milk as opposed to quality of milk these, uh, these days. And it has been since about the 30s. So there are two catalysts in American history that changed dairy as we know it, or as we knew it back then, one was the Great Depression. And so with the Great Depression, you had uh, many farms that went, simply just went out of business and followed very closely with the Great Depression and the lack of food and ability for people to even buy that food was the Second World War. Second World War ushered in for the first time rationing in America in a, in a very significant way and in dairy in particular, because we needed that nutrition for the war effort. And so the, the government got together with industry and made a decision. And based on those two catalysts, they said, well, we need quantity of milk more than we need quality. Up until that point, farmers were reimbursed on the, the components within the milk. So higher components, higher nutritional components like fat and protein, the more you were reimbursed. 
And so what happened was the government said, no, let's go bigger is better. Let's go for more. We need more. And certainly at that time, that made sense. And so um, the host breed of cow was selected to be the, you know, kind of the production cow and was turned from a cow into a factory. And so today, about 94, 95% of all dairy in America comes from one breed. It's the black and white Holstein cow. The lack of biodiversity in dairy is is ridiculous. And then it's followed closely by the Jersey breed. And so between those two breeds, you've got about 97, 98% of all dairy in America. And then you've got one to 2%, maybe close to 3% from about a handful of other so-called heritage breeds that have not been modified for production that are only producing about three or four gallons of milk per day compared to your Holstein that's producing anywhere from eight to 14 gallons of milk per day. So, you know, three, four, five times more. And so what you have with the with the Guernsey breed, so you've got a lot less milk. And so it's a more concentrated and nutrient dense milk. And it just so happens that a lot of those nutrients are fat soluble, like vitamins A and D, and fat also gives you flavor. And so the good news about milk from these heritage breeds of cows is that it tastes really good because it has a lot of fat and that fat gives it flavor, but it's also really good for you because that fat also contains some great nutrients. And we couple that up with data that it started to show about 12 years ago. And increasingly this has been confirmed in, in a lot of data coming out of folk, out of institutions that are looking at nutrient density. And the whole idea of fat is bad for you, we now know is completely bogus. And so we we were very much into providing full fat, whole food-based nutrition. And that's what you get with our milk. And you get more fat you know, uh, than you normally would. A, a typical Holstein cow will give you fat at around 3.5% of the milk is fat. And our cows are doing anywhere from 45 to 6.5% milk fat. It's averaging in the fives, five and a half range, which is significantly more. We're talking about 40% more, 45% more fat. And again, with that fat comes all these great, uh, come all these great nutrients. And, and so we looked at the lack of biodiversity. We looked at cows being turned into factories and we said, all of that should be undone. We need to go back to a time when heritage breeds ruled, where flavor was most important, where quality was most important, where nutrient density was most important. And so as people were moving away from dairy milk seven, eight, nine years ago, we were saying, no, we have a choice. We can indeed go to the so-called alternative milks, or we can look at this legacy dairy industry and say, yeah, it's going to be really challenging, but let's turn this thing around. Let's fix what we've broken via legacy uh, industrialized farming practices. Let's fix those things by doing it right, not just by walking away from it, pure and simple. And we saw, we looked at it and said, look, indeed, the legacy dairy industry has wreaked havoc on human biology because of lactose intolerance, dairy allergy, et cetera, and wreaked havoc on the planet. And we, we see ourselves as stewards of the planet. And we see ourselves as stewards of healthcare as well. And so we want to produce the highest quality, most nutrient dense nutrition and food for our friends and neighbors, while also doing good for our care of the planet and the resources that we've been given. Uh, and so with these heritage breeds, we can do just that. They're inherently more efficient on things like water consumption. They'll drink 20 to 30% less water for the same milk fat output. So they're kind of built into being regenerative. We are a fully regenerative, organic certified and organic certified and 100% grass fed company. We pay a lot of 
of attention. We focus a lot on soil health, nutrient density within soil, within soil health. Healthy soil means healthy grasses. Those healthy nutrient dense grasses mean healthy cows, means we don't have to use antibiotics or pesticides or synthetic fertilizers, et cetera. Our cows rarely get sick because they have a very good diet and that keeps them healthy. And genetically, our cows are the same as uh, the human uh, milk uh, genes, meaning that between 80 and 92% of people who have real symptoms of lactose intolerance or dairy allergy can drink our milk with no problems whatsoever because their issue is really not one of lactose or dairy. It's one of something called the A1 protein intolerance. And the story there briefly is that all mammals produce milk with the A2 milk protein, but Holstein cows and a few other breeds have mutated from the natural A2 milk protein to the unnatural A1 milk protein that when that enters our body and about 97, 98% of all dairy in America is that mutated A1 protein. When that enters our body, our bodies need to break it down, but it is a foreign substance that we're not meant to be breaking down. Um, we're meant to be breaking down A2 milk protein. So when we break down the A1 milk protein, a metabolite is created and it's called BCM7. That stands for beta casomorphine 7. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a morphine derivative. And it causes two things in the stomach. It causes the inflammation of the gut and the stomach lining. And it also causes the slowdown of the motility of the food moving through our, through our digestive tract. And while it's slowing down, it's literally fermenting. And so the, the symptoms of the inflammation and of the fermentation are gas, bloating, upset stomach, diarrhea, headache, etc. So you present with those symptoms to a doctor, your physician will likely say, oh, you know, lay off dairy for a week or two and let me know how you feel. You do that, you lay off dairy and he says, oh, see, you must be lactose intolerant or have a dairy allergy. When indeed the, the incidence of lactose or intolerance or dairy allergies a lot lower in the U.S. It's something around six or seven percent, where about 25 to 30 percent of people complain of some kind of discomfort when ingesting dairy. And so most people don't know, but they could have dairy no problem whatsoever if they had the right dairy, the not mutated protein, um, the A2 milk protein, which is what our milk is. Wow. Fascinating. That's incredible. Thank you for, for sharing the, <laughs> the history there. So what, what I want to circle back to you from that is your approach to, to start from rethinking human nutrition from the ground up, very almost explicitly understanding, you know, that in the, in the face of what is a Goliath behemoth, you know, corporate competition that, that you'll be undertaking yet proceeding with alacrity and ambition through it. What does it look like to, to get started in the face of, you know, understanding the, the daunting, you know, space you're headed into just like, what is your first big break? What does it look like to actually start working with, you know, farmers and in Ohio, what, what is, what does the process look like there? I, the process is multi-pronged because you've got to focus on everything from the farmer and sourcing and making sure you're doing the right thing by sourcing and creating relationships with farmers and building that network. But then you also have to think of the commercial side and how you're going to, how are you going to get this to customers? How are you going to give them that education? Consumer education is a big component of what we do. We tell stories all the time uh, and trying to engage customers into that, in, into the story to understand that what we're doing is, is different and that we need them to be part of that, that process. And so there are many different things that you have to pay attention to. You've got to obviously have a, a, a presence online and a social media presence, et cetera. And at first it was just, it was just me and built in quickly after that one or two co-founders to come alongside and work together to make sure that we are covering all, all of our bases. But I mean, for me, very locally here in Cleveland, it was figuring this out saying we need to start somewhere. We can't get powder until we have 
the fluid milk and then we can't get powder until we have cheese because lactose powder and whey powder are a product of cheese making because they're that's the that's the byproduct. And so, you know, it was just saying, okay, how do we get this to stores? This doesn't exist. Can we get a label approved? And it took months just to get a label approved, you know, with the Ohio Department of Agriculture Dairy Division because they had never seen an A2 label. And so they were fighting us on, is that right to say A2 or not? And then there are lawyers because there's a large company out of Australia, New Zealand called the A2 Milk Company, and they threatened to sue us. And they, you know, served me with papers, cease and desist from calling something A2, which is bogus because Anybody should be able to call it A2. It's a scientific term, but they call their company A2. So now they kind of have a lockdown on it, a trademark, at least at the time. And they, they had scared a bunch of farmers but because they had a trademark and they said, don't don't call a product A2. And I was like, whatever, uh, we're going to we're going to do that. That's that's bogus. So we did it. And the week we launched with our product on shelves, they sent us like a stack of cease and desist orders uh, and papers and said that they would sue us, et cetera. And that's a whole nother story of um, how we engage with them and won without having to do anything, without having to pay attorneys. So for me, that was just kind of ticking and tying and then saying, all right, we need to get this to, you know, we've got the product. I've, I've, I work with the farmer to get these cows, to get them tested, to do all these things, to get the label approved. And then we have to find a customer, right? So then I pick up the phone and I call Heinen's. And um, there's a legendary guy at Heinen's who was heading up the dairy department at the time. He, he has since retired, but he's an awesome guy. Everyone knows him. His le- name is Les Geierman. And Les was just an amazing guy. He picked up the phone and he listened to my story and he said, you know, I've heard about this A2 business, but I don't know anything about it. Here you are, a local guy that has it. Why don't you come in and let's talk? And so I came in, we talked. I knew nothing about the dairy world, the dairy business, the dairy aisle at a grocery store. Uh, he could tell that I knew nothing. He was very gracious and just worked with us. And uh, we found a distributor and that was our first, that's how we started. We just started with 20 some odd Heinen stores locally and started just telling that story and doing demos and samples in store. And that's that's how it all began. Wow. So, so take us from from there a bit through the the evolution of the the company over time and you know, perhaps we can land at, you know, what is, what does origin look like today? Sure. So today origin is a primarily a food company where we are focused on the dairy world because those are the primary products um, that will help us get to the byproducts, which is what we really want. What we want is we want to have a diversified portfolio. So we built what we call our differentiated nutrition platform. And off of that platform, we build multiple verticals. So that could be food, it could be nutrition, it could be for pediatric nutrition, it could be for adult nutrition. It can look like infant formula, toddler formula, growing up milk, um, cheese, butter, ghee, yogurt, uh, protein powder, collagen, minerals. So the, the core minerals, the 13 minerals that we find within milk, protein bars, all kind of diversified products that at their core are touched by or based in dairy. And so today we're still building, you know, many years later, we're still building on the food portfolio because we haven't reached the scale yet to be able to take advantage of the byproducts. Byproduct processing can only be done at huge scale. There are only a few places around the country that process uh, those ingredients. And so you know, from the get-go, from the origin of origin, our goal was to produce a portfolio of products, nutrition products, infant toddler formula to begin with, and others that had unique characteristics, the characteristics of the Guernsey and the heritage breeds of cows, and that also had unique certifications, 100% grass, regenerative organic survey, et cetera. And so we could have just been another brand that just goes out and co-packs, co-manufactures, with somebody and just puts our label on there, right? Which is what the vast majority of 
food and nutrition startups do. They're not creating anything in terms of infrastructure. They're not involved in stewarding the land and starting up, setting up farms, et cetera. They'd rather just go to somebody and have an idea, maybe tweak something here and there, but essentially use what's out there. For us, that was a no-go because it didn't exist. And so he said, well, we'll have to build it ourselves. We didn't intend to get in dairy on purpose. We got on, on, on dairy into dairy because we recognized that no one was building what we wanted to build, nor were they interested in doing it. They didn't see what we saw. And so we said, well, then we have to build it ourselves. We had to pay for cows. We had to pay for um, making sure that those cows get on the land. And, and while we didn't own the farms and we still don't own farms today, we do own cows and we own other pieces of infrastructure or other components along the way. And so we had to build it from the ground up and have these exclusive relationships, what we call covenantal relationships with our farmers, but much more than supply chain to make sure that we're working hand in hand, a true collaboration and partnership uh, to source what we want to source. And it's taken years just to build those out and to convince farmers and to pay them a premium. We believe in pricing justice and, and fairness issues for, for dairy farmers in America who have been, who have been left behind in terms of reimbursement. And so we had to take a holistic view, build this nutrition platform, but that the core of that platform are dairy products. So cheese, once you sell a lot of cheese, you have a lot of leftover whey. And in that way you find lactose and whey, uh, whey protein and other minerals. And so you have to get to the scale where you're able to downstream process all of those byproducts and separate and then dry each individual component. And so that's the process that we're in right now. So we are we sell a diversified dairy portfolio with the goal of reaching scale that will allow us to um, process the byproducts um, and then create our own ingredients. And essentially any product that, that we put a name of origin on comes from us, was made by us down to the core minerals, which is pretty minute. So you had, you had mentioned that, you know, Others didn't perhaps see the the vision that that you have seen yourself and 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 where you're trying to to get to with Origin. I'm curious from the from the market perspective. You know, when you walked into the Heinens, having at the time, you know, perhaps not a, a full familiarity with what the dairy aisle looks like. Maybe just paint a picture of what the the market today looks like and and where how you think about competition on this front. Is it is it mostly coming from factory farming, or are there now others who you know, see the vision that, that you've set out from a regenerative, organic, certified dairy initiative? Yeah, the, 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 I'd still say that the, the more tangential or most impactful competition or potential competition can come from both. So definitely the big players out there, they see a small brand like ours and they see what we're doing that's differentiated and they're paying attention and they up their marketing or they tweak to become A2. You know, Costco now has an organic A2 brand of their own. So they sell organic A2 milk. And so people are catching on to that. The big players are catching on to it and making adjustments and trying to protect their turf, right? So we, we're cognizant of that. At the same time, we're so small and we're so niche in what we're doing that they they don't really see the value in developing that space. Other smaller brands um, come along and what we'll, they'll tend to do, again, is become co or have the product co-manufactured. And so that's an idea and they just produce a label and they go and find people that are already doing it and they make some tweaks here and there. Um, that's also interesting. And especially now in the regenerative space, whether it's big brands or small brands, they're using the word regenerative because it's not 
it's not being regulated. And so we, we, we don't like it when other people just come out and use that word because it'll become genericized. Um, so we went through the steps of becoming regenerative organic certified rock ROC, which is the highest standard for certification anywhere in the world for any product period. And so it's not an easy process to go by, but we really believe in it. And we want others to, to do the same so that it's just not people using the word regenerative, even though they're not certified. They may indeed even be implementing all of this, the principles of regenerative farming, but whether they realize it or not, they are in essence cheapening and genericizing the term by not becoming certified. And so you have a lot of small brands that come out and they, you know, they'll, they'll say, oh, we have the story, we have this thing, we have this product. But in the end, you find out that they're not building infrastructure. They're not investing in land or practices or certification or whatever. They're going out, finding someone who's already making it, making a couple of tweaks here and there, and just putting their label on it. And indeed, in the nutrition world, that's almost all that you have, collagen, protein, et cetera. That's done at such big scale that the people are only sourcing from about a handful, five, six, seven raw ingredients producers, and they're just putting a different label on it. And imagine, I mean, just think about the tens, if not hundreds of different brands of whey protein that you have out there. And they're all essentially the same. There are some small tweaks here and there, but they're essentially the same because they're coming from the same half dozen to a dozen processors and producers. Mm. So you've mentioned scale a few times now, and I'm, I'm curious from my perspective, it from the outside, it seems like there might be this tension between, you know, a focus on an always local offering and, you know, getting to a place where you can give this to, to everyone. How does scale work in the, in the, in the context of, of the business, you know, in, in practice? Yeah. I mean, processing scale is the biggest bottleneck in regenerative food or nutrition production right now, because while the market might be there, the supply isn't quite there yet to be at the level and at the scale where a large processing plant that costs several hundred million dollars to build, that's running 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they don't want to switch changeover products or certifications or different characteristics of products. They want to do the same thing over and over again because they're built on very small margins. And so that means that when we come in with a, to a large processor and say, well, look, we, we're going to mess with you. We want you to put the, our products in and our products have to be segregated. They have to go first and you have to clean out your lines before you put our stuff in. You have to do all these other things. Oh, and by the way, you're going to be running not at 24 hours today. You're going to run it for only six hours and then you're going to switch over again. They get all bent out of shape because that's not efficient for them. And so that's the biggest bottleneck. It's staying local or staying regional isn't as difficult because you can you can find in a region you know in a say 400 mile radius you can find the number of customers that will source and that will give you that scale but it's getting the dedicated space or time with the processors to make it happen is really 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 difficult and so you've got to play at that larger scale you've got to make it happen you've got to make it work in our world certainly uh, on the byproduct side so i don't know that there's another dairy brand that was started or another food and nutrition bread that was started backwards. So we started with the byproducts in mind. So we have to sell the primary products, but what we really want is the byproducts. And then we want to bring those portfolios together so that you can have both nutrition and food, and then you can trust the characteristics and the certifications, whether it's cheese or whey protein powder or infant formula. And someone might look at that and say, what's the connection? I don't get it. Well, it's built on the same nutrition platform or the desiccated organs, right? So the, the organ supplements that we are putting out or others, um, someone might say, what, what, what does liver, cow liver pills and, and supplements have to do with infant formula? 
well, it's a nose to tail idea. It comes from the same animal, the same animal that brought you that infant formula at end of life. We do like tremendous end of life care. Um, that liver can be turned into a freeze dried nutritional supplement that can help with your own liver function. Um, from what we know of the studies that talk about like helping like, we want to see that entire ecosystem thriving and we don't want to see any waste in the system whatsoever. It's such a holistic, ah, I, I love the work you guys are doing. This is awesome. <laughs> so all, all this is happening in the, the context though of, you know, the, the proliferation of dairy alternatives, which perhaps, you know, learning what I've, I've just learned from you comes as a consequence of people not even fully understanding it isn't necessarily a, a lactate problem given this A1, A2 differentiation. But, you know, there is, right, in the market, it, you, you can't go anywhere now, like the, the default has become oat milk. And so I'm curious how you've thought about this alternative dairy world and how that manifests in the way you tell your story in the market and how you, you think about what is ultimately doubling down on authentic dairy. How, how does the, the whole storytelling narrative resonate? Sure. I mean, I, I think from the, the get, people were asking us if we wouldn't rather join the bandwagon seven or eight years ago when it was still, oat milk was still a very new thing. It hadn't even broken out. Oatly hadn't come to America yet to, to really take over. And I look at that and I say, alternative milk is fine. There's a market for it. There's a need for it. There's space for it. I'm not hating on alternative, you know, plant-based milk. I think it's great. What we have seen is what we were saying from the beginning. The only caveat there is that it is highly processed. I mean, it is an ultra processed food to get to that quote unquote milk. You've got to do a lot and you have to add a lot of other ingredients. You know, back then five, six, seven years ago, you had an average of something like 17 or 19 ingredients for an oat milk or an almond milk, et cetera. Now there have been other brands that have come along in the last about four or five years um, to make a clean label uh, milk, alternative milk that now is down to about five or maybe four ingredients sometimes. And that's still, that's better, but it is a processed, certainly a processed thing. You're taking nuts or, or fruit from a tree and processing it into a milk. They, those things don't generate milk uh, per se. You're making a juice, essentially. Most of those most of those um, alternative milks can actually don't need to be refrigerated because they're just they're just juice, um, but they are refrigerated because that's part of the psyche. You're playing kind of on that psyche. If you're going to buy milk, you're going to buy milk cold, so you're going to buy it uh, that way in the stores as well. And so, I think there's a there's a place for it by all means, and I'm not hating on alternative milks at all. I think it's really interesting now with the with the latest uh, trend with the um, sort of fermented milks and cultured milks, which is um, taking milk protein out of milk protein cells and then putting them into um, bacteria or other um, carriers, then fermenting them in large vats. And those will then create an actual milk protein that is considered vegan. And there are a couple of companies that have been doing that. Their articles have been going around the last two, three, four years. And so you're able, perfect, I think perfect day or p perfect something um, is a company that that produces something like this. And so you can, you can get a a dairy-free dairy is essentially the way they're marketing it. It's also highly processed, um, and it comes from, you know, a lab essentially. And that's going to be a trend that we're going to see more and more of, where you're taking genetics from an animal, able to reproduce the animal product, but able to, but then you're able to say it did not come from an animal. It did not. It wasn't milked from a cow. It's still milk genetically. It is still dairy milk, but it did not come from a cow. 
Um, and so I think that's going to be really interesting to, to see how consumers react to that. Um, is that something that they want? Is that something that they don't want? How does the nutritional stack up and, you know, how those flavor profiles stack up, et cetera. I, my opinion still is, and I'm, again, I'm not hating on any of these things. My opinion still is, is that creation knows best. And the closer we are to the created order of things, the better. The more we're in labs processing and ultra processing and creating and tweaking processes, um, I think the further we get from what really is what we should be consuming. It's fascinating because it feels like you've been able to foster a real culture of innovation, but it's it's kind of backwards because innovation in this context means returning to tradition and to nature. <laughs> is, is there a tension there with that? How do you, how do you think about that? That's exactly right. That's how we think about it too, is that our quote unquote innovation is a throwback in time. And it's to say, hey, we did certain things really well. We changed them. As I mentioned, there are these catalysts, Great Depression, Second World War, completely logical. Hey, that had to happen. We had to scale up. We had to focus on quantity over quality. The times required it. Not hating on anybody in, in history for doing that. That made sense at the time. But then what happened is, you know, war is over and you're in the 40s and 50s and 60s, and you see that that's more efficient, that's making you more money, that's more profitable, et cetera. And you say, well, why not just keep going this way? And every other industry did the same through the 60s, 70s, and 80s, continued on that track, and here's where we are today. With 60 plus percent of our diet in America comes from ultra processed foods. And so clearly that has a direct impact on our health, absolutely. Um, the ingredients that we're using, the fillers, the additives, everything from the land, what we're putting onto the land, synthetic fertilizers, chemicals, et cetera, to everything that we're adding into the food itself so that it's more shelf stable, so that it looks prettier, so that it you know doesn't go bad, et cetera. All of these things are absolutely having a negative impact. It is undeniable, a negative impact on both our health, wreaking havoc on our health and on the planet. And so we say, yeah, as backwards as it might sound, the innovation is to go back in time and it's to realize that we've been given parts of creation to use and use wisely um, so that we can heal, you know, heal what ails us or prevent certain things from, from ever occurring to begin with. And I think the more that we go off the grid in that sense, go off, off the legacy food industry grid and, and get back to what it was before industrialized farming practices uh, and efficiencies took over, we're absolutely going to see a positive impact to our health and a positive impact to the planet. With that kind of future facing lens, are, are you optimistic about, you know, the, the, the future in, in terms of this transition towards that, that kind of thinking? And then I, I guess the, the second kind of question with that is, is, how you think about success, you know, from Origin's perspective and, and what is the, the impact that you hope to have, you know, on the future of the dairy industry going forward and, you know, th in, all in the context of this nutritional platform. So when we think about the future, this, this legacy dairy industry is, is a behemoth. It's huge. It is filled with lobbyists. It has um, a lot of interests, you know, literally $180 billion business. If you look at just direct dairy, plus all the derivatives, it's multiple hundreds of billions of dollars. So a lot of interest there um, to keep things going in status quo. And so the hope we have is not that we're going to turn this whole thing around, is that we're going to create 
some pockets of opportunity for people who are so focused on their own nutrition, their own, the food that they want to consume or the planet that they will find respite or they'll find an, um, an opportunity to connect with our ethos and to link those, that approach to food, food as medicine, nutrition, care for the planet, stewardship of the planet um, and of our resources in such a way where for those people that do care about those things, we can have something to offer them. And when they're spending a dollar to buy that food or that nutrition product, they know that they're doing much more than just buying a product, but they're part of a movement and an ethos. Will that spill over into 50% of the population or even 10% of the population? Don't know. Not sure what the future will bring, but we know that we've already created that movement and we're part of other brands that really care and other workers of the land that really care about regenerative principles and linking up in that community with them to continue to build that movement. And there are absolutely, absolutely great, great customers that have come on board and that are supporting us and supporting other brands like this. There's opportunity to do a lot of good, continue to build into the future for sure. What does the prioritization of the welfare of your your animals look like in in practice? And in our you know in that same kind of lens, are you optimistic that those kinds of practices could be you know emulated at, at scale? Well, we work with a lot of small. I mean, everybody that we work with is a small family farm. So the most cows we have at one farm are 130 some odd cows, and that's a that's still a very small family farm. That's a father and his son. That's it, and so. Most of our farmers are 35, 40, 50 head of cattle. And so animal care is incredibly important to us, but it is incredibly important to them. That's their livelihood. If that's what you're relying on, you're going you're gonna to focus a lot on making sure that they're very happy cows, that they're very healthy cows, that their milk has never gone bad or that they're not able to be milked because they have a disorder or a disease or something that ails them. So Animal care is of primary importance for us, not just because we're ethos driven and we think that's the right thing to do, but also because it's intimately tied to the well-being of our farmers and the financial well-being of the operations that they're running of their their small family business. And so, yes, we have these crazy standards. Regenerative organic certified standards come with the highest animal care standards, period, because there are three focuses in regenerative organic certified to build on USDA. It's soil care and soil health. It's animal care and animal health, and then farmer care and farmer health. And so we're paying attention to these three living components of what we call the living ecosystem um, to make sure that everyone in that living ecosystem is, is, is doing well. And then we look at the consumer, the customer as the fourth part of that ecosystem, because without the customer, you couldn't have any of it. And then the, far- the customer couldn't have anything without the farmer, without the animals or without the, the soil. And so we go to great lengths, not just to build on the on the standards, animal care standards that are prescribed out there and go way above and beyond that, working with our farmers to say, hey, what's the wisest thing to do in these circumstances? And if it's to go and do something that others don't require us to do or others wouldn't do, we'll do it because we're not making decisions commercially. We're making decisions on what is best for the health of the land or the soil, what is best for the health of the animal, what is best for the health and well-being of the farmer. We'll just make those decisions regardless of what the outcome is. Yeah, I love that. Just even asking the question, you know, what is the wisest thing we can do? It, it, it's, uh, I feel like it's, it's not practiced quite, quite enough. Through, through that, I, I'm curious also taking a step back, reflecting on, on your journey so far, what do you feel are, are some of the, the biggest lessons that the 
you know, the, the corporate world from, from which you came could learn from the world of agriculture. And, you know, it sounds like perhaps even one of them is just, you know, the focus on, on quality over, over quantity, but it, it feels like your approach to, to business and company building and just this holistic perspective, there, there's a lot, you know, the, the rest of the, the corporate world could, could benefit from thinking about in, in those kinds of ways. I mean, the thing that I, that I take away from my experience as an entrepreneur more than anything else, and it's not necessarily related to farming or to dairy or to food systems, is the idea of constantly seeking quality and, and seeking something that is going to be differentiated and is going to be better. And the way you get there, I think, is by asking the right questions and looking at the status quo, looking at what's being done and being innovative in thinking about it and saying, okay, it's always been done this way, but why? Can't it or shouldn't it be done that way? Or you see a number like 95% of all dairy comes from one breed. That should prompt you right away to ask a question. Well, wait a second. Is that normal? Is that natural? Is that good? Is that bad? Especially as someone like me who knew nothing of dairy, I just gravitate towards certain numbers or certain concepts and, and ask the question. And certainly ignorance is bliss in, in this case because so many people early on told us, no, you don't want to be doing this. This is really hard. Like what you're tackling is difficult. It's tried. People have tried to do this in dairy. It's really hard not knowing that it was going to be this hard, we did it anyway, right? That ignorance um, was really helpful in allowing us to take some certain kinds of risks and have certain expectations and then see it through. But I think a lack of innovation in, in the corporate world is absolutely something that you uh, see very plainly when you are in, when you're an entrepreneur. Uh, the lack of people asking questions, the lack of leadership, you know, I think most of the people that I've ever worked with uh, you know, at Pfizer, leading pharmaceutical company in the world, Cleveland Clinic, leading healthcare institution in the world. You know, at best case, the, most of the folks that I worked for, they were great folks. They're really great folks. But they were, in a best case, they were, you know, good managers or decent managers. They were not leaders. You know, very, you know, maybe one person that I worked for, I could say, yes, that individual was a leader in his or her field and in the world. And we lack that. In corporate America, what happens is, I worked for the innovations department. I mean, I worked for a group literally called innovation, but rarely did people really value innovation. Most people, because they're managers, what they value is just do your job, like do what you're being told. And so I would love to see more companies embrace innovation and asking questions, but encouraging their employees to be ambitious, to be um, those that ask questions and that turn problems upside down, left and right, inside out. Um, it's also risk. Most corporations don't take risk. They do not take risk. They shy away from risk. And in fact, you know, when, you, when you're working on a project in the corporate world, you might work on something and after a month or six months or a year, you know, work on this thing and it failed or it didn't come to fruition as you thought it was going to. And that's an acceptable outcome. That's acceptable. It's like, oh, well, it didn't work. In entrepreneurship, it's not an acceptable outcome. Failure is not an option. You have to make it work. And that's a very, very different mindset and work ethos. No, that, that all that all resonates quite a lot. I appreciate your your perspective there. We'll we'll uh, you know round out the the conversation here with with just a, another question or two. But before we come to our closing question, I'll just ask: What, when you think about the future, has you most excited? You know, over the next year, over the next five years, what what's on the the horizon for for Origin? So I think the the increased opportunity for us to get into the nutrition products, the nutrition portfolio that we've been yearning for and building towards, that gets me excited. Um, that's really good. More exciting than that, I think, are the people that are involved. So we, we're building our team, and that's been just 
phenomenal just having people come to us and say, hey, we want to join you. And, and extremely talented, really just wonderful people with a beautiful soul and beautiful heart. Uh, and we're just so grateful that people are coming to us and we don't even have to go and, and seek them. And they're just amazing people. So building with people is really, really great. That's a, that's a blessing. And that's just a joyful, just fills our hearts with joy. It's like shalom and peace creating and just so nice. I talked to my team more and more last year, like, dude, are we having, guys, are we having fun? Are we having peace? Are we like joyful about what we're doing? Is this what we want to be doing? Um, that's so incredibly important. So building with the right people is great. So we'll get there to all the byproducts and all the other nutrition products, but doing that with people is great. Then doing that with the larger community is also great. Plugging into other regenerative farmers, you know, working on fun things like mac and cheese, the first regenerative organic certified mac and cheese, because we've got the cheese. Someone else has the regenerative flour. And so we can make a mac and cheese pretty easily and just do that for fun. It'll be great, right? Super high end, like really great mac and cheese, but fun, not not taking it too seriously. Doing those kinds of things are really great. So you expand the network and you work with people from other parts of the US in other industries or other farms or part, other parts of the world. And that's really, really good. It's really great to be building that community. And, and, I, and I think that our team is just loving being part of that. You know, there are very few of us that are regenerative organic certified. And, and so working in community with others is, is a lot of fun. It's really good. The another thing that I'm excited about that's tangential to what we're doing is there are so many people seeking information about food as medicine and nutrition as medicine. Um, so many podcasts out there that, that, that people can access and listen to and money and resources being thrown into uh, looking at food as medicine and nutrition and things that we've taken for granted or have not known enough about. Now we're seeing, yeah, curcumin and turmeric really does do this. And this other thing really does do that. And you should be eating, you know, organ meat because it's so nutrient dense and it will, help to prevent this or heal that. And so that's got me pretty stoked. The fact that increasingly every month, every year that goes by more and more consumers are paying attention to these things and aligned in that ethos and looking for food as preventative medicine or curative medicine and nutrition as the answer. And we certainly believe that food is nutrition and nutrition is healthcare. And so it's our health. And so, so we're, we're loving the fact that consumers are out there because Everything we do is we don't advertise or market. We tell stories. You know, we tell a comp compelling and engaging narrative. And we want you as a consumer to feel part of that narrative because you are. Um, and then to find alignment in ethos and move forward together doing good, again, for humans and for the planet that we're called to steward. Hmm. Well, I'll tell you as a, as a, as a listener to, to, to this narrative, it does feel quite inspiring um, <laughs> and compelling as you have told it. So I'm... Um, Again, just really appreciative of you uh, you coming on to share more more about it. Thanks for the opportunity. It was good, really good to chat. Absolutely. So I'll ask you just the the traditional closing question, which is is pretty unrelated, although maybe maybe it is related um, to, to what we've been talking about, but grounded in, in Cleveland, which is not necessarily for your favorite thing in the area, but for something that other folks may not know about, but but they should. I don't know. I don't know that there's one specific thing that I would say, yeah, this is the one hidden gem that I have. Um, I think maybe what in, in my world, what I value and I think is, is really great and going around different parts of the country, even different parts of the world, you know, we have the Great Lakes and the Great Lakes are not a hidden gem by any, by any means, but they are 
an incredible resource, right? And we have access to that water and we have access to that resource that needs to be and should be stewarded so much better than it is, I feel like, uh, especially here in Cleveland. But everything from from the water itself and the needs for farmers, et cetera, to use, but even also just the way we're using that real estate. You know, we, we realize that we have industry and a highway on prime, you know, river, you know, lakefront uh, real estate, which is just silly. Very silly. And I wish we could steward that that resource in a much, much better and wise way. I, I share with you that, that desire. <laughs> well, Adrian, th- thank you again. This, this really was, uh, amazing to, to learn about. Yeah. I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big fan and, uh, excited to follow along on your, your journey as it continues to, uh, unfold here. Hey, appreciate that brother. If folks had anything they, they wanted to, to follow up with you about what, uh, would be the, the best way for them to do so. Info at originmilk.com is a way to get a hold of our team. So info at originmilk.com is probably the most direct way to get messages uh, out to our team. And we get back to folks all the time. Great. Well, thank you again. Thank you, Jeff. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with The Up Company, LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on the show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.